Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. My name is Emily Feda, and I will be your guide as we converse with scientists and physicians to learn more about cannabis as a plant and how it can be used as medicine. If you've been following along with us for season two, you'll see that we've been expanding our scope beyond just cannabis to cover the medical and therapeutic potential of a wider range of psychedelics like MDMA, psilocybin, and ketamine. We're seeing a lot of efforts around the world to decriminalize psychedelic medicine, so I really hope this will be a good resource to educate about the current state of science and research on these different types of medicine. In other news, we are on Instagram at cannabis underscore science underscore today. So find us there to ask any follow-up questions or to just join the conversation about some of the topics that come up on these episodes. And as always, if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Today we are featuring Dr. Lisa Monteja, who is a neuroscientist and professor of pharmacology at Vanderbilt University. She is a leading researcher studying the neural mechanisms underlying the efficacy of different antidepressants, and she's published a lot of groundbreaking research on the antidepressant effects of ketamine. Ketamine is one of the few psychedelics that has been approved by the FDA to treat treatment-resistant depression. In this episode, we discuss how ketamine affects the brain. She shares the neural mechanisms that it induces in the brain and how it works differently than other antidepressants like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, and we talk about ketamine's ability to induce plasticity in the brain and how that could revolutionize treatment for refractory depression. Okay, so tell us about your background in neuroscience. It sounds like you have a long history of studying psychiatric disorders and the efficacy of antidepressants. So where did your research journey begin for you? So my research interests actually started um, when I was younger. And I think I grew up in a small town and I was very good at math in particular. And so it was a lot of encouragement of math and science. And I found the classes interesting. Um, it wasn't as if I thought I would necessarily be a researcher. I wasn't sure, but I enjoyed the classes. And it sort of fed one after another into college and taking more math and science classes. And, uh, you know, I'd heard about research. I really didn't know what that meant past lab classes in college. And so as a freshman, I became very fortunate to have the opportunity to work in a lab. And I did that uh, throughout my undergrad experience. And it was, you know, doing the most mundane things in the beginning because it was all new to really working up and being able to do exper experiments by the time I graduated. And I really liked it. I liked the creativity of how you were testing an idea, but it could totally change. And in the end, it really came down, at least in my mind, to asking a question and regardless of the outcome, being able to try and understand it, whether it you know, really fit your hypothesis or didn't fit your hypothesis. It was really about the excitement of trying to understand something novel, look at a question in a different perspective. And um, my foray into neuroscience was a little bit roundabout. I was an undergrad major in microbiology. And um, I will spare you the details, but from microbiology, I transversed into uh, neurobiology by way of working in industry. And um, 
in a way, it was a little bit surprising. I really, I'm a much more molecular cellular person was our approach, but it really seemed relevant to uh, the questions in neuroscience. And from that, um, I ended up doing a postdoctoral fellowship in uh, the Department of Psychiatry at Yale. And it was such a dynamic time. There was so much research going on related to depression, addiction, so many different aspects. So I was actually, uh, as a postdoc, focused in a lab uh, with addiction, but there were so many exciting questions. um, And we heard a lot about clinical studies. It was just an exciting time. And so when I went to start my own lab, I'd worked for a big name addiction researcher, Eric Nessler, and I wanted to separate. And so I really thought the questions related to depression, antidepressant efficacy were interesting, and it would allow me to really sort of separate from you know this giant in the field of addiction and ask questions really um, from a different perspective. And so the first thing I did was actually in starting my lab was to hire electrophysiologists. I really felt that there was a need to really understand more at the synaptic level, these potentially diseases, if we could model them in animals, but also how potential drugs may work. And um, there'd been electrophysiology done in neuroscience, especially in terms of how drugs have looked, but most of it had been field recordings or looking at pathways. But to really look synaptically at what is happening, because that synaptic or, you know, the synapse is the point of, to point communication in neurons. So if you can change synaptic function, that's going to influence how that neuron functions, how that whole circuit functions, and can ultimately drive behavior. And we use this incorporation of a whole range of, you know, very diverse techniques, very cutting edge techniques to try to start to unravel how antidepressants work as one main question in the lab. Yeah, that's super interesting. And it sounds like you were also doing a lot of work with neurotrophins or different proteins found in the brain, which were really critical for understanding um, how depression works. So, so how did your research on the brain eventually lead you to um, invest doing investigative work with, with ketamine? So when I was starting my lab, um, I hadn't trained, as I mentioned, in the field of depression. And so starting my lab, I really thought questions related to antidepressant responses and depression were really interesting. And the question is, if you've never worked really in this field, how do you start? And so I spent probably about two weeks just going through the literature, trying to figure out if there was a particular angle or sort of a point of entry. What would be important in terms of knowing? What may tell us something about antidepressant responses? And um, in that course of of literally about a week and a half to two weeks, every paper I could find on antidepressants, it was what was known, what was the antidepressant, what was the dosing regimen, what did we know it, it did? And what, um, after going all through this, it became very clear that neurotrophins, in particular BDNF, that that was one of the most consistent findings, that antidepressants could regulate this growth factor. And it appeared that, um, in particular, the hippocampus, which is one particular brain region, appeared to be important from a lot of the clinical work, at least imaging studies, of a region that may be important for antidepressant responses. And interesting, BDNF was consistently shown across various studies to be regulated um, by various antidepressants. 
And so while there was a lot of hype then that BDNF may be important, no one had actually tested, okay, is it truly important? Is it required for an antidepressant response? And so the first studies we did deleted BDNF, this growth factor, specifically in sort of the frontal regions of the brain, the cortex and hippocampus. And we were able to show that if you deleted this growth factor specifically in these brain regions, independent of when you delete it, if the animal was an adult or if it was during um, early stages of development, regardless of that, antidepressants didn't work. So BDNF was required. And we could go on to show that it was due to effects on, you know, it appeared to be effects on synaptic plasticity in the brain. But how do you go from taking an antidepressant, which typically requires a couple of weeks before you feel better? So there's a lot of changes that are happening in your brain because you're having this drug on board for a couple of weeks before you start to feel better. Because, you know, we talk a lot about um, things like Prozac or Wellbutrin. They increase monoamines, things like serotonin, quickly. But the drug doesn't work for a couple of weeks. So there was a lot of talk that the only way to get an antidepressant response was through some sort of slow plastic changes in the brain. And BDNF seemed to be required. So we were trying to really delineate out that pathway when the work on ketamine came online. And... Um, the ketamine work in patients was really fascinating. They took a very, very small dose of ketamine, 0.5 mix per kilo, and they administered it to patients that were in an inpatient um, unit of a hospital. And rather surprisingly, they found this rapid antidepressant effect. It was completely unexpected. And um, some that single low dose infusion of ketamine in some patients had antidepressant effects out for days or in some patients even out to weeks. And so we were quite intrigued about this. And the reason we became involved in ketamine from all this background is that one, ketamine demonstrated for the first time, rather surprisingly, that a drug could exert a rapid antidepressant effect. You didn't have to give a drug for weeks and have slow plasticity changes for an antidepressant effect. Ketamine was triggering antidepressant effects within you know, two hours. So clearly it could have a rapid effect. And secondly, ketamine is well characterized as blocking a particular protein in the brain, the NMDA receptor. And so for us, it really presented the opportunity of could we actually study ketamine show that it blocked the NMDA receptor. And if we could, could we then delineate out the signaling pathway of what triggers this behavioral effect? For the first time, could we really molecularly put together a puzzle, if you will, of what it takes to generate an antidepressant effect? Because if you can do that, then you can start to think of ways that you may be able to use that information to generate better antidepressants. So that was really our initial interest into both BDNF from the typical antidepressants and then trying to understand it to this rapid antidepressant effect of ketamine. And I will mention, um, ketamine does also require BDNF. So BDNF seems to be a central molecule that we know has a lot of important roles in plasticity and neurotransmission in the brain. And mm -hmm. it's interesting that whether you use a typical antidepressant or ketamine, they both require BDNF. So before we get into some of the specifics uh, of this research, for listeners who are not familiar, could you define ketamine 
And, and could you also give us more information on um, how this substance was first discovered and then how it was adapted for human use? And, and I'm also wondering, do you consider ketamine to be a psychedelic and, and why? So ketamine, ketamine is a really interesting drug because it's been well studied for quite a while. And most people have heard of ketamine. So at really um, higher doses, ketamine is an anesthetic. Um, it's not widely used in the U.S. because it can trigger some adverse effects, but it's quite safe um, in, the, in the regard that um, the uh, lethal dose range, it's, it, it, it's, it's a safe drug. It can be used, for example, on battlefields, very safe in that regard. Um, but what happens is that um, at lower doses, kind of mid-level doses, it can actually trigger sort of um, schizophrenia-like effects, if you will, um, delusions and all sorts of aspects. And in fact, it's an abuse drug. Um, it has many different names on the street, including Special K among many others. What was found was that it was an incredibly, incredibly low dose. So, um, you know, just nearly an order of magnitude lower from these effects that was infused into patients. So at this really, really low dose, you generated this rapid antidepressant effect. And it was surprising. Um, the patient population that they were studying, they weren't necessarily looking for antidepressant responses. Um, they infused in ketamine at a really low dose because they didn't want to cause any adverse effects. And rather surprising in these patients, they found this antidepressant effect. It was completely surprising. And to be honest, when it was first published, no one really knew what to do with the data because it was so surprising. But with time now, this has been replicated and there's been you know, a growing interest in ketamine. So ketamine is an interesting drug. It has all these, you know, various effects depending on the dose that's used. What's interesting is that there's been some data um, preclinically now as well as clinically showing that if you start to go and increase the dosage, more is not better in terms of an antidepressant effect. If anything, you lose the antidepressant effect. So it's having very specific effects depending on the dose. So, you know, again, if you give more and more doses, you don't get a better antidepressant effect. If anything, you seem to lose the antidepressant effect. So we are studying it at these really low doses to try to understand the antidepressant aspects of it. Mm -hmm. And our thought is, very generally, is that as I mentioned, ketamine blocks this um, protein, this NMDA receptor. And so we think at this really, really low dose, there may be some specificity in how it's blocking this receptor, if you will, the types of receptors it's blocking, where then when you increase the dose to get more at the sort of hallucinogenic level, that when you get to higher doses, you're just starting to block all NMDA receptors, which may be contributing to the adverse effects and maybe some of the psychedelic effects. And then when you get to really high doses for NMDA, a set of what's used in anesthesia, you're not only blocking those receptors, but you're probably starting to have non-specific effects, which is, you know, part of the anesthetic effect, if you will. Right, right. That's so interesting. So it sounds like the dosing is super critical in terms of achieving mm -hmm. the effects that you yeah. want. So, so let's talk about your 2015 paper, Antidepressant Actions of Ketamine. And in here you talk about some of the molecular mechanisms happening in the brain that were responsible for making ketamine this fast-acting antidepressant as opposed to Prozac or 
um, some of these other well-known antidepressants that take weeks to get started. So could you, and I know you've gone, gone into this a little bit, but I'm wondering if you could elaborate on what you discovered here. And first of all, how fast acting is ketamine and how long do these effects linger in the brain? Like do patients see long-term effects or is this something that needs to be redosed pretty consistently in terms of, um, in terms of being able to have antidepressant effects uh, on patients? So it's a really good question. So what we did was we studied ketamine and what we could show is that ketamine by blocking this glutamate, this NMDA receptor, this was required to trigger the antidepressant effect. So it's a different target than how typical antidepressants work. Typical antidepressants very quickly increase things like serotonin. Um, it's all probably seen on television. Uh, this is your brain when it's depressed and then it has like a small amount of serotonin and then you give an antidepressant and it increases serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter. It, typical antidepressants increase serotonin quickly, but they still require weeks to, typically weeks to exert an antidepressant effect. And so how do you increase serotonin and yet have a couple of weeks before you exert the antidepressant effect? That was sort of this idea that it's triggering some sort of effects in the brain that take a while, and that's why it takes a while before you have the antidepressant effect. Ketamine, by blocking this other protein, this NMDA receptor, it works on the neurotransmitter glutamate. So it's blocking, glutamate is a different neurotransmitter than serotonin. So ketamine, by blocking this NMDA receptor, is very, very quickly inhibiting or having effects on excitatory transmission in the brain because it acts as a on a particular glutamate receptor. And so what happens is, is you trigger this very rapid effect. It has a different target of how it's acting and it triggers this whole signaling cascade. And so what we've proposed is actually a pathway for how ketamine is working. And we can show that if you interfere with this pathway, you lose ketamine's antidepressant effects. And I think one of the most surprising parts of what we found was that ketamine triggers a very novel form of plasticity in the brain. And the question is, what is this plasticity, which is what we've been studying? If you interfere with the pathway, this particular pathway to generate the antidepressant effect, you also interfere with this plasticity. So we've been trying to understand these questions. What's interesting is um, if you give a single dose of ketamine, you can show that this pathway is engaged, it's required, it triggers this plasticity. Ketamine can still have antidepressant effect in patients, um, typically for several days, but in some patients out for a couple of weeks, which is rather remarkable because the drug has a half-life of a couple of hours, meaning that ketamine is not hanging around for long periods of time in your body. It's actually metabolized fairly quickly. So how then are you still having an antidepressant effect for days or in some patients out for weeks later? It suggests there has to be some sort of changes that have occurred in your brain. And so that's why identifying this novel form of plasticity in the brain, we're studying to try to understand what is it doing. Um, it is not, you know, it's not the typical um, long-term potentiation, which some people may have heard which is involved uh, is believed to be a cellular model of learning and memory. This is a different form of plasticity. So we're trying to understand 
how do you have this long-term effect? But even in patients that are given ketamine and have an antidepressant effect for a couple of days or maybe a couple of weeks, at some point you're going to lose that antidepressant. And so what happens then? And clinically, there's a lot of work going on right now to look at different dosing regimens of ketamine so that you can maintain that antidepressant effect. Is it you know once a week? Is it three times a week? What is it going to be so that you can maintain without losing that antidepressant effect? So there's a lot of work clinically going on in this area. And we've also been doing a lot of work preclinically to try to understand how this works. What it is, you know, we have this pathway, but how is the pathway engaged to really try to extend the antidepressant effect? Because it's an important mission. Uh, you know, it's amazing to patients if they can say, uh, you know, have antidepressant effect especially for individuals that have been treatment resistant or haven't responded to typically antidepressants, but then to be able to maintain it. So that's an active area of investigation right now. Mm -hmm. And in any of your preclinical studies, have you started to observe potential side effects, especially long-term side effects of using this as a medication? I know we've, you talked briefly about how um, these high doses can have these delusional or effects of psychosis, but, but actually long-term health impacts, do you think, of using this? So it's a really good question. So preclinically, we've mostly been focusing on trying to understand how do you trigger this rapid antidepressant effect. So most of our studies have really focused on that initial. You get the drug, and then what are you triggering? Well, required because we can understand how you trigger it and then you can perhaps target that pathway for therapeutics um, perhaps you know developing better antidepressants or faster antidepressants um, so we've mostly been focused as I said on this rapid effect um, when we give this very very low dose of ketamine in animals we see a little bit of hyperactivity very quickly but then it subsides very, within a few minutes um, if you give higher doses of ketamine, you start to see more pronounced effects in terms of hyperactivity and um, learning and memory impairment. And at really high doses, the animals do fall asleep. So we can mimic you know, this sort of dose effect in patients that you can also see in animals. They produce different behavioral effects. In patients, there is a discussion on ketamine. You know, this very low dose, when it's infused some patients do report feeling a little off but that typically subsides when the infusion is done other patients not so much so it depends um, really you know on it but part of it is the dose it, it, clinically it's an incredibly low dose that's used in our studies we're using an incredibly low dose we're only now starting to do repeated ketamine to try to look at the effects and those are ongoing studies right now to try and understand. Our goal is to understand how do you maintain the antidepressant effect, but of course we're still continuing to test animals in various ways to see if there's any adverse effects. Right now, um, you know, again, with the clinical studies going on, with preclinical research in our lab and others going on, it's probably a little early to say. There's not been any adverse indications that have been reported per se but it's still a very new area of research. Mm -hmm. 
And when you're looking at, when you're doing these preclinical studies, have you examined what the effects might be if a patient or an animal, in the case of your research, is using another medication concurrently? Because I, I know this is mostly being used to, to treat treatment-resistant depression, but what if someone is on one of these SSRI medications? Um, would they also be able to be a candidate for, for this kind of therapy? So it's a really good question. So my understanding in this area, uh, and I do not see patients, my understanding in this area is primarily because of IRB approval to put drugs in patients. Most of uh, the studies have focused on patients that are treatment resistant. Um, there has been a small study of it that's showing that ketamine works in patients that have depression that are not treatment resistant. Um, but there's going to be more work done in this area. One idea that's been postulated, sort of a slightly different question, but is that if you didn't respond to typical antidepressants and then you responded to ketamine, could you then go back to typical antidepressants and would they work? Would ketamine trigger some sort of change in the brain that now typical antidepressants work? And so that's something that's being investigated. We're doing some studies on that and it hasn't you know, it, it's hard to say preclinically. We have our thoughts on what may be happening in that, um, you know, I guess my bias would be that if you didn't respond to a typical antidepressant, but you responded to ketamine, it may be because there's some changes, maybe some polymorphism or mutation in particular genes that are necessary for how a typical antidepressant works. And that's why you didn't respond. And so, with ketamine, thankfully, you can generate an antidepressant effect, but if you go back to a typical antidepressant effect, it wouldn't work because you still have that polymorphism or mutation. But we'll see. I mean, it's an ongoing area of research right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. And in your, in your 2017 paper, you mentioned that ketamine's dissociative side effects, which you've kind of gone into a little bit, the psychosis or... Um, del you know, delusional paranoia um, ha has led people to search for alternative compounds that can still have these rapid antidepressant effects without the side effects that happen in these high doses. So could you kind of elaborate more on what you discovered when you were comparing ketamine to other substances or other medications? And um, particularly, it looks like you, you investigated um, memantine potential use as an antidepressant and what did you find there yeah so the memantine um study is an important it's actually quite an important study but for a different reason so when ketamine was identified to have these rapid antidepressant effect in patients and it was replicated then um they started building momentum on okay what is ketamine doing Ketamine is, as I said, it blocks this glutamate protein, this NMDA receptor. It's well characterized to do that, but it could potentially have adverse effects. So there is a drug, a similar drug called memantine, which is also an NMDA receptor antagonist. And memantine um, is FDA approved for Alzheimer's disease. And it doesn't trigger the side effects that ketamine can trigger. 
So what resulted is uh, several clinical trials where memantine was given to patients, hoping that if, again, you block this NMDA receptor, you could trigger a rapid antidepressant effect without the side effects of ketamine. However, memantine did not work clinically in triggering rapid antidepressant effects. And so what was published was a number of, uh, you know, the studies were published, and there was a number of uh, discussion points over the fact that if ketamine triggers a rapid antidepressant effect and blocks the NMDA receptor, and memantine, which also blocks the NMDA receptor, doesn't trigger the effect, then the NMDA receptor can't be the target. There has to be a different pathway involved. That was sort of the idea. However, there's another possibility, and that is this NMDA receptor, this target, is really important for many, many things that happen in your brain in terms of learning and memory and a whole range of important um, just physiological um, aspects of brain function. And so just because you block this receptor, there's different ways that you can block it and different ways that you can affect the function. You can fine tune it, if you will. So even though they both may quote unquote block the receptor, they could have different functional effects. And so what we did is we compared ketamine and memantine side by side, and we looked at the function, the really the synaptic function of this NMDA receptor. And we see that it's different. How, how ketamine can actually block functionally this receptor where memantine at low doses doesn't. And if we look further, this pathway that we identified that's necessary for ketamine to trigger an antidepressant effect is not engaged by memantine because it doesn't engage the receptor and it doesn't trigger this novel form of plasticity, which ketamine does. And so what we could show is really a rationale, a reason as to why ketamine or memantine could target the same protein, but yet they still have different functional physiological effects. And that initiate whole other downstream effects, which probably are why one has an antidepressant effect and why one doesn't. So it's not really a psychedelic per se, it's really more of a trying to, trying to test the hypothesis and further explain about the specificity of what we're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it comes down to it's not just about blocking the receptor. There are, there's another element at play as well. Yeah. Because if it were just blocking the receptor, then anything that blocks the receptor could be a potential antidepressant. But we know that's not the case. A lot of drugs, you know, have failed. But is it not? It's not because they don't block the receptor, but they may not have the same functional effect on the receptor, which is why you don't get the rapid antidepressant effect. Yeah, that's so interesting, and I think that's such critical research too with these clinical implications. Because then you, you know you're like, oh, we'll block the receptor and create this new medication that blocks the receptor, but but it could be ineffective for patients. So sounds like that was a, a very important study exactly. to, to move forward exactly. in ketamine research. Um, yeah. Okay. So I'd love to go into some of the specifics of your 2020 paper, which is increasing doses of ketamine curtail the antidepressant responses. So, and, and we've talked about this throughout, but it does sound like, so there's these different doses. So there's the sub-anesthetic dose, which has its antidepressant effects, and um, an anesthetic dose, which would be to knock someone out or tranquilize, uses a tranquilizer. And 
could you elaborate a little bit more on what is happening, you know, what molecular mechanisms are, are happening in the brain when ketamine is given at these different doses? So, you know, it's an interesting question. Um, we don't really know how anesthetics work. So ketamine can have anesthetic effects. Um, you know, it knocks people out. It can definitely knock out um, animal model, you know, your particular model organism. Um, and it's really been unclear why. When you get to, um, you know, sort of mid-level doses where you can trigger these um, sort of hallucinatory type effects, if you will, those have been uh, more studied and there's some idea of how that may be triggered. The antidepressant effects are much, much lower. And, um, you know, the question is why? Again, we don't really see, you know, there may be dreaming infusion in patients. There may be um, some altered euphoria, dreaming infusion, but it's nothing long lasting. These patients are not recovering because they're completely out of it and have no idea, you know, where they are or anything like that. It appears to be an antidepressant effect. And so we've been trying to understand why this is an antidepressant effect. Again, how does it work? So what we did is we took doses uh, in preclinical animal models. We took a dose um, closer to the anesthetic dose. We didn't want to knock the animals completely out because we wanted to study them in certain ways. But we did a very high dose close to the anesthetic dose. And then we did more mid-level doses to, and we could actually recapitulate some of the hyperactivity and learning and memory and other behavioral alterations that are sort of considered, um, you know, hallmarks of the sort of mid-level dose of academy. And then we gave really low doses, which we could see these behavioral effects, these antidepressant effects. And, you know, we showed that if you go to these higher doses, you don't have these antidepressant effects, which was not particularly surprising because, um, it was sort of in agreement with other data out there. What was surprising was that we could show that we have this particular pathway that is engaged that triggers this plasticity at very low dose of ketamine. But when we get to higher doses, this pathway is no longer engaged and we no longer get this plasticity. So again, more is not necessarily better. As you're starting to get to higher doses and you're triggering other effects, you seem to be losing the antidepressant effects. And so that's really what we talk about in this paper. It's not just you lose the behavioral effects, but there's differences in signaling as well as plasticity in your brain, depending on the dose that you're given. Um, do you think you'll be able to use this research to really find that sweet spot for ketamine dosing in, in a clinical setting? And do you think the dosing might vary too in terms of a person's, like let's say in the future that ketamine was going to be offered as medication for, for more types of, depress for, of depression, you know, more of a, a wider spectrum other than just treatment resistant. Do you think the dosing would change and, and do you think this research will inform that? Um, the dosing could change. I mean, I think that ultimately the clinical studies, I think the, the importance of basic research is really trying to understand how the drug works. So that if you understand how it works, then for example, could we target, a, could we try to create a faster antidepressant by not targeting the NMDA receptor, but maybe downstream of this particular signaling pathway? Could it have even a faster antidepressant effect? 
could you get away of potential side effects of blocking the NMDA receptor? So that's sort of the implications of our research. I think ultimately, um, you know, our work may help to guide, but to some extent, it's the clinical research that's going to be trying, you know, if there's some deviation of the dosage for the different patient populations. What we're trying to understand is, again, how it works, and then does this start to provide any sort of framework now to go back to typical antidepressants and to understand how they work? We don't think they work through the same mechanism of ketamine of blocking the NMDA receptor in this pathway, but there could be some downstream point of convergence that's necessary, that in order to get an antidepressant effect, whether it's through typical antidepressants or fast-acting, you, tr you get these different behavioral effects because you target differently, but ultimately you get to some downstream effect that is necessary to drive an antidepressant effect. It could this work on ketamine inform that? And if so, then could you start to think of other ways to target this commonality? And it might help to start to trigger, again, better antidepressant development because depression is such a heterogeneous disorder and there's so many different types of depression. So it's trying to ultimately create more treatment options for patients. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to another scientist who was doing, uh, she was a psychiatrist and she was doing clinical studies with MDMA. And she had mentioned that patients who had used antidepressants or especially SSRIs long-term, they weren't really seeing effects um, when they were using MDMA. Do you think that might have, do you think that might be possible for, from what you know about the brain and your research with ketamine? Do you think that a similar principle might apply to ketamine? That if they had used typical antidepressants and they hadn't seen an antidepressant effect, would they respond to ketamine? No, no, more if they had used antidepressants long-term, because of course, like these SSRIs could potentially uh, create long-term changes, structural changes in the brain. Um, so would someone who had used SSRIs long-term but maybe wanted to wean themselves off of them or switch treatment options, do you think using the SSRIs might have um, an effect on their ability to, to see successful results with ketamine? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Um, there's not a lot of work done, again, because of IRB approval that's necessary to do a lot of these studies in academic medicine. So they focus primarily, so they, um, if they first try patients on typical antidepressants and if they work, then they stay on that. So most of the research clinically on uh, ketamine has been done in treatment resistant. So what what I what I would probably um, think is maybe a possibility is that if you take if you're diagnosed with depression or an indication you're prescribed an antidepressant, we don't quite know how that antidepressant works. Again, you increase serotonin quickly, but how does it work? We don't know. Um, you know, we know some downstream factors are important, but we haven't linked it all together. So, however you respond, you respond. There's definitely a subset of patients that don't respond and those are um, considered treatment resistant. We know that of the patients that don't respond to antidepressants, probably about a third of all patients, that if those patients are given ketamine, 
The majority of those patients do have an antidepressant effect of ketamine, but not all of them. And so there are some patients that don't respond to either SSRIs or ketamine. So what I would propose is that if you take the antidepressant and you respond, you respond however you respond, but everything that that pathway, whatever is necessary is all intact. For the patients that don't respond, there's some sort of change along those pathways, a polymorphism, a mutation. It's not one particular gene. It could probably be a range of genes, but then you take ketamine and you're able to shunt an antidepressant effect in a different manner. And for those patients that don't respond to either SSRIs or ketamine, they have some sort of polymorphism or mutation that's downstream so that they have of the effect. There's sort of a common point of convergence and maybe that common point of convergence is where the mutation is. And that's why they don't respond to either way of triggering the antidepressant effect. So in those patients that are given an SSRI, they respond. And it's important to note that, you know, you take an SSRI and you can be on it for years, but when you come off of it, you typically, you know, it often revert back to depression. I would think that a number of those patients have given ketamine may have an antidepressant effect as long as everything is intact in the signaling pathway for ketamine and how it triggers an antidepressant effect. There may be some patients that, you, may have, you know, everything works fine on the serotonin system, but in the glutamate system, because of a change, it doesn't. But yeah, a lot of patients, I would expect that it could work in both ways. Well, that, that's really, that's good to hear um, because I think it's, you know, some of the psychedelic research is so exciting and interesting for people who have struggled with depression for years, but it's good to know that if people have tried other medications, they can still um, have really good potential effects with this. So my final question for you yeah. is, I'd like to know um, what, what, what research are you working on currently and what would you most like to find out um, in your research going forward about, about ketamine and its anti, antidepressant effects? So um, we're doing a number of things with ketamine. We're trying to understand this long-term effect of ketamine. I mean, people talk a lot about structural changes, but really you have to have functional changes in the brain. So what are these functional changes? How do you, you know, just because you build a structure, unless it's functional, what does that mean? So are there functional changes and what are they? So we're trying to understand that. We're doing a lot of, I mentioned this plasticity, which this novel form of plasticity in the brain, we're just trying to understand this. Is this an important component? If you could just trigger this plasticity, maybe independent of how ketamine does it, could that be a novel way to trigger an antidepressant? Could some of the psychedelic drugs be triggering this type of plasticity? And is that maybe how they could have antidepressant effects? I don't know. I mean, we haven't went down that path. But we only see this plasticity with this rapid antidepressant effects. So we're trying to understand it. We're doing a lot of work, very, um, a lot of work really trying to look at the pathway and ultimately the neural circuitry. We think the ketamine, the antidepressant effect is initiated in the hippocampus, a particular brain region that then is transitioned to the cortex and then to other brain regions. So we're trying to understand the circuitry. But ultimately, what are we trying to do? Well, all this work with ketamine, we're trying to use ketamine, if you will, as a Rosetta Stone. We're trying to use ketamine to try and understand rapid antidepressant effects, and hopefully they're going to guide us into understanding 
you know, how typical antidepressants work, but also opening up a way of thinking about how you generate an antidepressant effect so that you could try other molecules. You'd have a way to screen them past just the behavioral pharmacological approach, which has been used for the last couple of decades, but perhaps looking at synaptic effects to try and identify compounds to ultimately be able to really have an impact, again, on the heterogeneity of patients to have more options of treatment. Yeah, wow, wow, well, that's so interesting. And I, I'm so looking forward to, to some of this new research that, that's coming out. So thank you so much for your time, Lisa. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I'm excited to learn more about your podcast and to really uh, continue to follow up on it. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast, where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.